Let's turn in our Bibles together, please, to Colossians chapter 2. Let's begin by asking a couple of questions and interacting a little bit. How many of you, at least from time to time, struggle with self-righteousness? All right, let me just tell you, you should, you should raise your hand for both these questions that are coming, okay? <laughs> How many of you struggle with self-righteousness? All right, good, thanks. Um, how many of you struggle with shame and or guilt? Yeah. This passage is for you today. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I was excited whenever it was the next set of verses to preach. This is often, this passage is often where I go personally when I am struggling with self-righteousness or shame, which, if I'm being honest, is a lot of the time. And so, if you, like me, struggle with self-righteousness or shame, this text of God's Word is for you today. And it is my hope that it will not only intrigue you, but that God's Spirit will cause it to take root deeply within you, and that you will return to it again and again and again. When I was a young person just learning how to study the Scriptures, I marked my Bibles up all the time. I know some of you still do that. In fact, I was spending some time with our women's ministry team recently, and one of the ladies was talking about getting a new Bible, and one of the hardest things about getting a new Bible is transferring all of her notes over. I love that. I don't tend to do that anymore. I don't tend to mark up my Bibles anymore. I'm a bit OCD, so I like my pages to be clean. But for those of you who do, and it's totally appropriate to do so, this probably should be one of those passages that gets a little bit brittle. Its pages might get a little bit worn. There might be some, some marks from the oil from your skin because you've come there so much. Perhaps you could come to this passage and date it over and over and over again as it encourages you with your struggle with self-righteousness and shame. And so, let's dive into the text together. Today we're going to talk about the emancipation of the gospel which is a big word, which basically just means the freedom, the fact that we have been freed by the gospel. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. Please hear God's word. In Him also, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities 
and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And may God bless to us the reading of His holy word. As we have studied together through Paul's letter to the Colossian church and now return to it here in January, the beginning of our new calendar year, let us remind ourselves briefly of where we have been. Paul wrote this letter to the city of Colossae, the church in the city of Colossae, to call them to hold fast to the pure, true gospel given by Christ through his apostles to the church, preserved for us through the scriptures. Apparently, there were influences that had crept into Colossae that were beginning at least peripherally, at least at least in some small way to influence the church, and perhaps was threatening to eclipse the gospel itself. We cannot completely recapture all of what these errors, this bad doctrine, might have been, but it seemed to have been comprised of two basic ideas. The first is that Though Jesus is necessary for our salvation, He is not sufficient for our salvation, which is subtly dangerous and, if not exposed, damning. Jesus Christ is not just necessary for our salvation, He is sufficient for our salvation. But it seems as though here in Colossae, one of the doctrines that was beginning to at least peripherally permeate the church was that, yes, Jesus is necessary, but you must add to this observation of the Jewish law, things like circumcision. So let's say you were a Gentile born and raised in Colossae, but because the gospel came from a Jewish Messiah bringing to completion a Jewish law, you had to observe some of that law to be right, to be justified in God's sight. And Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he makes it very clear that observance of the law will in no way bring justification, cannot make you right with God, because no one keeps the law perfectly. The second dangerous doctrine seemingly that was permeating the church, at least peripherally again, was some sort of mystical, perhaps folkloric doctrine that had Jewish elements and perhaps local Colossian elements to it. So putting these two things together, there was some kind of doctrinal influence in the church which was a mixture of legalism and folklore. Unless you think this is just a problem from two millennia ago, we face these same problems today over and over and over again. People believing that somehow through legal observance they can buy God off. That still permeates the church of Jesus Christ to this day. Furthermore, we have vague spiritualism all around us. You hear this constantly in our culture. I am not religious, but I am spiritual. Whatever that means. These problems persist to this day. But the good news, the gospel, is that we have been granted the almost too good to be true privilege of being united to Christ, not through our own works, not by achieved merit, 
not through acts of appeasement, but by reliance upon His grace, period. And through His free grace, we can be made right with God, justified in His sight, with the expectation of eternal life and fellowship with our Creator. In this text, Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15, Paul highlights major doctrines such as sin and salvation. And he breaks it down. What about salvation? Well, he talks about new birth, redemption, atonement. This passage, though short, is chock full of life, hope-giving truth. And it is my prayer that God's Spirit will meet with us today and impress it upon us. This text encourages us to be continuously mindful of the good news of Jesus. I would say to you that that is our call for this coming year. We, all of us, must be continuously mindful of the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Why? Verses 11 through 12, first of all, because we are prone toward establishing our own righteousness. Why, in verses 11 through 12, did Paul feel it necessary to talk about circumcision and then baptism? Why? Because of the influences around them. As I've already established this morning, and as we've talked about over the past many months, because of the dangerous doctrines that had begun permeating Colossae and the church in Colossae, Paul wanted to make it very clear that circumcision or other observations of the law were not necessary for salvation, and in particular, an element of salvation that we call justification. God's legal declaration that we are righteous in Christ. Only those who are justified, legally declared righteous, may spend eternity with God and fellowship with Him forever. How is justification secured? As the Scriptures make clear again and again and again, it is based upon our faith in the settled work of Jesus Christ alone. And Colossians is no exception to that teaching. But the truth of the matter is, because of the disease of sin, we have accompanying symptoms. And one of the accompanying symptoms of our sin is that we are deep down very self-righteous. And we are prone toward any message that we can do something to contribute to our salvation. It is like a narcotic to a drug addict. We cannot help but be attracted to messages or pleas for self-righteousness. It is really, really easy for us to be critical of the fundamentalists among us. I grew up in basic fundamental Baptist Christianity, there were some good things about it. There were lots of bad things about it. It's easy for me to look back and, and gripe about it, to be angry about it, to think I've somehow reached some state of Christian enlightenment against it. 
But the reality is if you cut me or any of us are cut just slightly, we bleed immediately self-righteousness. We love to establish our own righteousness. This discussion about circumcision here in Colossians 2, 11 and 12 is rooted in the Old Testament. Most of you are probably relatively familiar with the story that Abraham was given a covenant and also a sign to go along with that covenant. And that sign was circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17, he was to circumcise himself and all the males of his household. Later on, as Jewish tradition grew, every young boy that was born was circumcised at eight days old. But Abraham was an old man when this happened. It was a painful, even somewhat gory rite to show that Abraham and all those in his household were set apart to God. Why circumcision? Well, perhaps at least largely because much of the Gentile uh, country, nation, surroundings, region in which Abraham was to dwell was not circumcised. And Abraham was to be different. It was also to be a daily reminder to the head of every household, to all the men of the households, that they were different, that there was something even in their bodies which marked them apart, which set them apart to God, from sin to God. And over time, this became a source of national identity for the Jews, and even religious pride. We are not like the uncircumcised around us. But the external rite, R-I-T-E, the external practice of circumcision did not justify anyone. There was no way that through circumcision one could be declared righteous in the sight of God. It was always supposed to be, as it is often said in theological circles, a physical reminder of an inward reality. Moses picks up on this in Deuteronomy 10. And he says to Israel, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding for you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. And notice the last verse here in Deuteronomy 10, 12-16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Israel, for a long time now, the span between Abraham and Moses was around four centuries. For about 400 years they had had this practice of circumcision. But it had changed never a heart. And now, just as Moses is about to go off the scene, and the people are to enter into the new land, the promised land, where they'll be surrounded by people who are uncircumcised, not just physically, but spiritually, Moses reminds the people, go into this new land, you new generation, with circumcised hearts. And this is what Jeremiah picks up on in Jeremiah 31, when he declares that a new covenant is coming. 
The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Just to pause for a moment. They had every privilege, even the privilege of being set apart to God from their neighbors, and every external act did no good to change their heart. Moses goes on to preach to the people, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Now I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. They had hard hearts. They needed, according to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Jeremiah chapter 31, hearts of flesh, circumcised hearts. And the prophet promised that there was coming a day when God would do just that, when He would, by His sovereign grace, remove their uncircumcised hearts of stone and replace them with circumcised hearts of flesh. What Paul is warning the Colossians about here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, is that the rite of circumcision, the physical rite of circumcision, did not, had never, and never could do any good in transforming the heart. Only God can do that. And notice here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, that this was done through the circumcision of Christ. Every person in Colossae, whether they were physically circumcised, Jewish Christians, or uncircumcised, Gentile Christians, which would have been the majority of the church here in this Gentile city, that they had an internal circumcision which far exceeded any physical circumcision. And because of the dangerous doctrines around them, Paul wanted them to be careful, to be circumspect, to be vigilant, that any call to self-righteous observance of any law must be put aside. In other words, Paul wanted the Colossian believers to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus alone and to not be duped, to not be tricked, that anything that they could do could make them right before God. He goes on in verse 12 to talk about baptism, so a second metaphor. The metaphor of baptism, the symbol of baptism, is to remind us that we have been crucified with Christ and raised to new life. Notice in verse 11, the circumcision of Christ is credited to us, and the powerful working of God rescues us. All of this is sovereign grace. We do not make ourselves available to God. We do not seek after God. There is not some spark within us that makes us commendable to God or causes us to crawl to God. This is completely the sovereign love of God. Paul picks up on these ideas in Romans chapter 6. You're probably pretty familiar with these verses where the apostle says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 
We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because of the sovereign, gracious emancipation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be careful not to turn to other sources of righteousness because they will always come up empty. They cannot make us commendable to God. In fact, conversely, they will only instill within us self-righteous pride and drive us far from God. So what does Paul do here in Colossians 2, 11-12? He reminds the believers in the church, Jew and Gentile alike, physically circumcised and not, that they need nothing else except for Jesus. Everything had already been accomplished for them, just as God had promised for ages past and now had been fulfilled in Christ. How does self-righteousness show up in us? I recognize that when I ask such a question, the one I asked earlier, how many of you struggle with self-righteousness, it's hard to answer that question sometimes because it's hard to know what that means. Let me give you some ideas of what, of what self-righteousness sometimes looks like. A synonym for self-righteousness might be posturing. All of us, in one way or another, I have never met a person that I have pastored in the last 15 years of my ministry that doesn't posture at some point. All of us do it. But what does that look like? First of all, I think it looks like defensiveness. Those of you who are married understand what it's like to be defensive. To have someone who knows you intimately, the good and the bad, inside and out, and sometimes because they have to or just through the normal course of living together, the bad things that you do and the bad things that you are come out inevitably. This is what happens when, when God puts people together. When God puts sinners together, conflict comes, and the bad stuff inside of us comes out. How do you respond to that? Well, hypothetically, sometime over the past 365 days or so, we probably got defensive. I mean, hypothetically. Where we didn't own up to what we did, or we, we minimized what we did, or we explained it away. So posturing, self-righteousness can look like, like defensiveness. It often shows up in acts of comparison, where we highlight our strengths, but obscure our weaknesses. We know that the standard of a perfectly holy God is too much to live up to, so what we inevitably end up doing is, is highlighting the things that we're good at and likewise highlighting the things other people are bad at while at the same time obscuring the things that we struggle with. We struggle with comparison. I don't do that anymore, though my neighbor does, therefore I am better than them. This is what this looks like. It's ugly. We could spend weeks just on that. Maybe we'll come back to it later this year. Sometimes it looks like extra-biblical rules. Now, I don't mean by this that families can't have their own standards. For instance, 
The Bible does not talk about mobile phones and social media. My family has rules about that. But they're based upon biblical principles. We want to protect our children from posturing, from evil influences. But if we're not careful, we can make the extra-biblical rules. Now, notice I didn't say non-biblical or unbiblical, but we can highlight the extra-biblical rules to such a degree that we actually forget about greater areas and elements of holiness, like love, mercy, justice, and repentance. Be careful with your extra-biblical rules. Self-righteousness and posturing can sometimes look simply like anger, annoyance, suspicion, and hyper-alertness. How do annoyance, anger, suspicion, and hyper-alertness characterize a self-righteous person? Or perhaps a better question is, why do these things show up in self-righteous people like us? Why? Because we're annoyed by people who are further along in certain areas than us. We get angry when our sin gets exposed. We are suspicious of other people, particularly in contexts where people don't practice repentance and grace. And we're constantly hyper-alert because we're afraid we might get exposed. And the truth of the matter is, our annoyance, anger, suspicion, and hyper-alertness are a frustrating and exhausting way to live, but all of us if we're being honest, live in that cycle at least from time to time. How do we counteract this? Well, we counteract this by being continuously mindful of the good news of Jesus, which is why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. We must never grow weary or tired of coming back to the gospel over and over again. I have quoted this following quote a couple of times to you, but I, I want it to sink in. It's one of those quotes we should all know. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was asked, Pastor Luther, why do you preach the gospel to us over and over? In other words, we know it. Why do you keep returning to it? And he said to them, I keep preaching the gospel to you because you keep forgetting it. And may 2020 be a year where we grow in our awareness of the gospel in our homes, dads, moms. Be careful. That your homes are permeated by grace. Grace is the only thing that can push back against the tide of self-righteousness. And this is not just the rules you keep or the activities that you pursue. It has a whole lot more to do with atmosphere. At the end of the day, family worship time is really important. But the things that your children will remember the most are probably not who taught them the story of Jonah and the fish. In other words, did we learn that at home or did we learn that in Sunday school? The thing that your child will probably remember more than anything else is the atmosphere of grace that you established in your home. Or conversely, and tragically, an atmosphere of self-righteousness, of cross-comparison, and needing to measure up. The most important thing that you can do in your home is establish an atmosphere of grace. This doesn't mean you don't take sin seriously. You must take sin seriously. In fact, I would encourage you to be careful to establish a pattern of repentance in your home. Dads, it has to start with you. Be honest. Be clear. Be definitive. 
don't just say things like, I'm sorry. That might mean you're sorry you got caught. You're sorry you got exposed. Use careful language like, please forgive me for this offense. And you who forgive, use careful language like, I forgive you for that. Now, you may think I am making up an extra biblical rule, but it's a way of taking sin seriously. For in such confession and repentance, you are not only saying what is true, I have sinned against you. Those who grant the forgiveness are saying to the one who has, who has faltered, who has sinned, who has offended, I release you from this debt. And there is nothing that feels much better than knowing that you have royally screwed up and being absolved from that by God and by those you love. Create those atmospheres in your homes. Likewise, we must have that atmosphere in our church where we are unwilling to live with cross-comparison, where we will not posture, where we will not compare, where we will pray for one another, where we will not only be willing to forgive those who offend, but we will delight in forgiving those who offend. That may sound odd to you, but isn't that what Jesus is like? The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus went to the cross. That doesn't even make any sense if you don't understand the gospel. But if you understand the gospel, you will not only be willing to forgive offenders, you will delight in doing so. And our church must be characterized by such grace. So, we must be continuously mindful of the good news of Jesus because we are prone toward establishing our own righteousness. Furthermore, we must be continuously mindful of the good news of Jesus because we are vulnerable to guilt and shame. Not only do all of us struggle with self-righteousness, which has been answered through the work of God, the resurrection of Jesus, who was raised by God to conquer sin and death, we also struggle with this thing we call guilt or this thing we call shame. We are vulnerable to it almost all of the time. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, these verses that we read together earlier in our liturgy, Paul reminds the church in Rome and us today what God has accomplished through the cross. Notice verse 25. Whom God, speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This big word means that Jesus bore the wrath of God so we don't have to. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here is the wonder of the cross. That simultaneously, simultaneously, God judged sin. In fact, God hated sin so much that he was willing to put his own sinless son to death. God is just. And yet, at the same time, he is a 
just fire. In other words, he makes unjust people just in his sight. The cross is simultaneously a judgment against sin and an outpouring of grace for all who will receive Jesus. And this is why Paul can say in Colossians chapter 2 what he says about our guilt and shame. Notice again in verse 13, Colossians 2, You who were dead, not damaged, not sick, but dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. Sovereign grace. With Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with His legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is how God deals with sin. He punishes it. The wonder of the cross is that Jesus already took that punishment. He is our propitiation. Because Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin, we can become the righteousness of God in Him because all of our sins have been dealt with. So what is the gospel? That Jesus Christ was crucified and was raised victorious over sin and death. And if we will trust Him, we can be made right in the sight of God. We can be declared just. You are familiar with the story of Jesus Jesus was crucified on a wooden cross. As we know from John chapter 19, there was an inscription put over that cross. A couple of pictures I'd love for you to see. You notice at the top of that cross, an inscription. Pilate put it there, declared that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Now, whether Pilate really believed that or not, it's not super clear from the text. He may have just done it to sort of goad the Jews. But this was often done when crucifixions took place. There was a placard, an inscription, put above the offender's head, the crucified's head, to declare their crime. In other words, this act of crucifixion is just because this crime was committed. It was also meant to be a deterrent to all who saw. Paul picks up that idea here in Colossians chapter 2 by talking about what God did with all of our sin. It was common in Roman and Greek culture, if you had committed certain crimes or had certain debts, to have a certificate of debt or offense written against you. It was a legal document. What Paul is saying here is that God took all of our sins, all the justifiable claims against all that we had ever done, all of our acts of unrighteousness, and as the next picture will show you, nailed them to the cross of Jesus. All of your anger, all of our greed, all of our pride, our countless acts of lust, our sinful, prideful acts of worry, our adultery, our abortions, all these things that we cannot even verbalize or articulate in quiet company has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. We committed them. 
They're not hypothetical. They're not a maybe. They're real. And there's way more than we would ever care to articulate. And some of them are so dark that we're afraid to articulate because we're afraid of what people will think about us. But every single one of those acts, every faithless act, every act of worldliness and lust has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. And they do not condemn us. And therefore, we must be reminded of the gospel of Jesus if we are going to deal with our very real shame and guilt. Unless we think we can just merely forget them, Paul makes it very clear from this passage that there are invisible forces that are reminding us of them all the time. And this is what Jesus did in verse 15. Through Christ, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. This is a reference to what Roman generals would do. They would go to far-flung places to claim more land for Caesar and to show their military might and dominance. They would take some of the, the booty, some of the spoil from war, and bring it back to Rome and parade it through the streets. You people from Gaul, you people from Germania, we have conquered you. Have no illusions that somehow you measure up to us. This gold from, from the temple of your deity, these treasures from your villages, they are ours now. And in a completely righteous and holy sense, that's what Jesus done with all of our sin and all those who claim dominance over us in the unseen realms. We know from Zechariah chapter 3 that Satan himself accuses the people of God. The prophet says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Whether we see it or not, there are unseen powers that are accusing us constantly and usually they are spot on in their declarations of our sin. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What is Satan? What are the forces of darkness consistently whispering in our ears? Our offenses. And they're usually not illusions. They're usually accurate assessments of what we've done. Furthermore, we often are surrounded by people who do the same diabolical thing. I was reminded recently by someone that I have known for my whole life that I have done many, many bad things, too many countless things to be numbered, and I should be very aware of these things if I'm going to be in an appropriate relationship with this person. It doesn't feel very good when you have 43 years of sin. So what do I do? Do I explain them away? Do I act like they didn't happen? No. Nope. I turn back to Colossians chapter 2. That despite the fact that all these claims by unseen forces and by very real flesh and blood people are true, I am not condemned. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God in my place 
all my very real sins. And all of those sins have been nailed to his cross. So I don't have to posture in self-righteousness. And I don't have to turn to shame. So, I say to you from Colossians chapter 2, we, all of us, must be continuously, this means all the time, we must be continuously mindful of the good news of Jesus. Why? Because we are prone toward establishing our own righteousness, every one of us. And furthermore, because we are vulnerable to guilt and shame. When Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation, it was designed to destabilize the Confederate states. This was a couple of years, maybe three years into the war. And Lincoln was doing political maneuvering to bring the war to an end, to set Confederate allies against them, and to eventually free the slaves in the southern states. Eventually, because of the 13th Amendment, the border states and the northern states would also outlaw slavery to the fullest, and then after the war, everyone would at least on paper be equally free. The reality was that wasn't the case. Even though there was the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, there were still all kinds of racial and ethnic tensions and tons of mistreatment that were not just settled in the 1960s, they persist to this day. But back in that day, if you were a free black person that had been legally freed, maybe you'd paid off a debt, maybe you had been born free, maybe you had been released by an enlightened slave master, you had to have papers which declared that you were free. In fact, many people had to go to court, particularly in the border and northern states, to obtain what was called a certificate of freedom, which they would then file in the county they lived in, so that if they were ever uh, arrested or set apart by the local authorities that they could claim their freedom. They had legal papers to back it up. So I say to you, and I remind myself today that the gospel is true. I don't have to posture in self-righteousness. I don't have to wallow in guilt and shame because my certificate of freedom has been secured by Jesus Christ. So I need from you this year to remind me when I'm posturing, to remind me when I'm wallowing in guilt and shame that the certificate of freedom secured by Jesus Christ is mine. And I will do that for you. And we will do that for one another. And may this church be a church that constantly rehearses the gospel of Jesus because we are so prone to forget it. May the atmosphere of this church be such that it is permeated by grace, that we have a certificate of freedom reminding us that all of our sins have been nailed to the cross of Jesus, that we need not posture in self-righteousness, we need not be vulnerable to guilt and shame, because our salvation has been secured. Jesus Christ the righteous speaks words of grace to us today. May we hold fast to his gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now by your Spirit, I pray that you will take your holy word and plant it deeply in our minds. May we, may we understand it and implant it deeply within our hearts that we might embrace it. Because we are so prone to forget, I pray.
that you will remind us of these words from Colossians 2, 11 through 15. That we need add nothing to our salvation, and therefore we need no posture. And that we need not be overcome by shame and guilt, for Jesus has already answered all of the shame and guilt. Transform us in profound ways in the days to come. May this church be one that is marked by surprising, disarming grace. Grant us this peace and use us to speak these words of peace to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.